Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? A comics podcast for the Savage Critics website. In the conclusion of episode 14, Graham McMillan and I tackle more questions from readers, including superhero offspring and the conclusion of One Moment in Time, the future of comic shops and the digital marketplace, which was recorded before Marvel's deal with Graphic LY was announced, photorealistic comics and Alex Maleev, and of course, the band Gorillaz. It's a return to super-compressed podcasting in the wait-what fashion. We hope you enjoy it, and thanks for listening. Oops. Hello, Graham. Hello there. Hello! I started Hello calling there. you back while I was also still talking to Edie, so that's known as bad <laughs> multitasking. Give me just one second. Um, fantastic. Hello. Um, <laughs> Hello there. So I hope you keep that open. <laughs> What the hell? I probably, after keeping the part about your Scottish work ethic in from a few episodes back, I certainly have to include this part, so it'll be a terrific compare and contrast. Hello? Hi. Hey, you are there. Okay, all of a sudden it's like dead quiet. You're like, you mentioned my Scottish work ethic? Yes, I... what, what is your problem? <laughs> so we have about half an hour. I have to be off by seven. Okay. Um, but... We can just we can just jump right in if that if that works for you. Of course. Yes, let let's go for questions. Okay. Go um. Okay. Uh, let me see what we have. Um, because I marked out the ones we already had. There's I'm, I'm glad you're Crane paying attention ones. to that in the way that I'm not. Sort of. Uh, where is? Oh, let's start with Tater Pie. Um. Hello, Amy. Hello, Amy. Uh. I hate superheroes having kids. Hate the date, date slash age issues. Hate the hostage taking. Talk about it working and not. So. Um, I'm not sure I can talk about it working. I didn't hate it when they did it with the Flash. Um, I don't know. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's a problem. I mean, you look at something like Fantastic Four, where Franklin's age has been all over the shop. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I think as a general rule of thumb, DC does it a little bit better as far as I'm concerned. Like, because of course, you know, Damien as Robin is, I think, probably the the most current example of it. And that... but, but that's kind of a cheat. Is it? How so? Because he was kind of brought on at a certain age. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think when you have characters where, like, there is a birth and there's a baby, I think the growing from the baby is the, is the part that really causes the problems with the age. But don't you think that... So do you think that the, the Flash was also a cheat in that regard? I think the Flash was a cheat in so many regards. And, but I think it was sort of almost more open with it because they had the whole... They're supposed to be growing older faster than everyone else. Right. Aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Um but I mean, something like, I mean, even something like Damien, there's a bit of a cheat in it because there's the at least implication that he has been genetically modified and he is not a real little boy. Mm. Uh, and so you can buy the fact that he's, what, 11, 12, however old he's supposed to be. Right. Um, without it overly aging um, Bruce Wayne. But I mean, right. look at something like even Robin. Robin, to, uh, by Robin, I mean like Dick Grayson. Mm-hmm to become a Batman really ages all the quote-unquote adult characters that are around when Robin was a, was a kid. Right. Because, I mean, realistically, there's got to be 
what, 10 years at least between Robin's first appearance and Robin being Batman, right. if not more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so all of a sudden, you know, what age does that make Bruce Wayne? What age does that make Clark Kent? And that's that's the part where I think it's a problem. I don't even think it's a, a family thing, although I think I think Amy's right. I think when you have superheroes who have kids, all of a sudden, like to an extent superheroes who have regular partners, they become hostage and story prop as opposed to anything else. Right. Well, which which we talked about which uh, in regards to Spider-Man and Mary Jane and, and part of the frustration that of, of having the married character and having people having no idea how to handle, I guess, the married character problems, I guess. You know? Did you read the last issue of um, One Moment in Time? No, perfect segue. Which, which, which as you know, I've had problems with. Yes. Um, first of all, Joe Quesada has stunning issues about marriage that's, <laughs> that he, he, you know... Someone should have pointed out to him before he wrote that story. Um, but I think I think it really, I think it kind of breaks Mary Jane's character. Do do you please spoil it for me because I doubt. So I'll essentially, okay. So they do all the. And this is how they didn't get married. This right. is how Aunt May's alive, and this is how um, everyone forgot uh, Spider Man, Peter Parker, and Mast, which is like the biggest ridiculous like we don't really have an answer so we'll do this no one asks us oh, thing really? well basically what it is is peter Parker goes to doc strange and doc strange goes oh i'll see what i can do and then hooks up with mr fantastic and tony stark to come up with what is described as a science magic virus that deletes everything including photographs and records that's the stupidest fucking thing yeah, ever yeah, that's no, the no, excuse yeah, that's, that's that's the reason Wow, but, so they actually do have it where he does actually unmask. Because yes, of course that, I sort that, of assumed yes, that it was. No, that is all. That all happened. Oh my god, those! Oh, like, and then everyone that, just that. forgot. Uh, um, no, it's, it's horrible. Um, oh but the, the the end of the story. So the framework of all the story is Mary Jane is talking to Peter about what happened to the relationship. Right. And the end of the issue is Mary Jane going, you know what I never realized? The problem with being with a superhero isn't the superhero. It's me. I'm just not strong enough to be with you. So why don't you go out and date other people? Right. And it then cuts to Peter Parker being like, hey, I've been feeling really down on myself, but now I've realized it's a brand new day. <laughs> and that's, that's honestly, the end of it is something like, you know, and it ends with the words brand new day, exclamation mark, in bold. Um <laughs> But but I think it breaks Mary Jane because it makes Mary Jane look like a coward. Well, of course. I mean, a of no, course you know, it I mean, does, like, and of course it breaks the thing. No, no, no. I'm totally with you. That's not who she is. She's supposed to be the one who, for want of a better way of putting it, doesn't necessarily think about that and goes after danger and is not the bad girl, but the right. Girl but she's sort of the she's the risk loving girl. Yes, she's the girl who's not afraid, and yeah. all of a sudden. In order for the story to work, in order for them to undo the marriage or the relationship, mm-hmm. they turn her into a coward. Right. Well, uh, and and this she is... gives Peter permission, which is like abhorrent to me. She gives <laughs> permission to date other people because she's not strong enough to be with him. Yeah, of course. I mean, I, I mean, I don't mean, of course, as in like that's 
of course, uh, no, totally no, appalling. Of course, that's the direction they went. In. But yeah, of course, that's the direction that they went in. Because when you when you hear Casada talking about the whole idea of, you know, his his whole thing was like, you know, if Spider Man got a divorce, none of us would ever like like him again, and none of us would ever care about Peter, and it would take all the fun out of the romance. You know, he clearly was pointing it toward this, like, okay, well, it's it's got to be a a magic you know, rewrite, and then him kind of going, ah, or we can, you know, set it up in this way where it's like, obviously, within the magic rewrite, where, like, Mary Jane, like, does all this stuff and says, okay, you go, you know, you go, you're too good for me, I don't have the strength for it. But the funny thing is, to my mind, that's the same as a divorce, if that makes sense. Of course it is. I mean, there's no reason why they couldn't have had that. Yeah, I don't see the differentiation between that and getting a divorce. Right, exactly. Especially because in the one moment in time, like what one moment in time makes very, very clear mm-hmm. is that the only difference between the current continuity and the old continuity is that they were not actually married. Right. They had the relationship for the same amount of time, they lived together, everything else happened. Yeah. Yeah, which kind of, which again, totally sucks some serious butt because, you know, I, I definitely think one of the ideas that struck me as like, potentially dangerous was what they were talking about like you know they they almost brought back Gwen Stacy you know and at the end of uh that whole yeah one more day one more day and I'm kind of like I don't think that that necessarily as long as you're gonna go for the reboot like go big in a way like part of me is like well that would certainly bring a lot of weird juice back into things because one of the things that always sort of bugged me is whenever they brought Gwen Stacy back like for House of M or things like that there was always kind of this idea of like well of course Peter would totally be with her if it hadn't been for the horrible tragic death you know scenario and part of me is like you know what what if you put that back on the board and then actually put a little bit of you know had an extra bit of dramatic tension in there not and not even have it be in a situation where you bring Gwen Stacy back and Peter's dating her again, but you know just the idea that she's there and then this whole idea of like, well, obviously he's going to end up with Mary Jane again, or obviously he's not. But you know, like you said, there's none of that that they couldn't have accomplished without 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 all the dumbass bullshit that they did the first time by by literally sort of draining the story out of as much drama and as much grounding in the Spider-Man mythos as possible by having Mephisto pop up and make it seem like it's a big deal to him. And then later on to do this other, like, retconning of it, which just sounds terrible. I mean, to to give a certain amount of um, devil his due, no pun intended, I remember being struck by reading Spider-Man for the the first time in a long time in the issues sort of leading up to the wedding. And when they reintroduced Mary Jane, they brought her back as a very different character than the way she left, you know? Yes. So I kind of, there is a way in which I, I, I thought actually that groundwork was kind of necessary in a way because it sort of their point was is that Mary Jane had grown up in a way and yeah exactly Mary Jane has to be someone uh, and this is going to sound awful but I mean it more from a story perspective than anything else but someone worthy of marrying Spider-Man right exactly and so they kind of did that in a way they also made her a a lot more vulnerable and a little more human sort of and I I thought so I thought that 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 was a a character retconning that, that worked 
in a way. Um, mm-hmm. So I can see where they, part of them would be thinking like, well, of course, we can do this because other people have done this sort of retcon of the character and it totally works. Um, but no, I mean, everything about one moment in time, just when you told me about the whole, like, he got trapped underneath a fat man, for Christ's sakes, I really was like, what are these people smoking that they it's, think it's, this is a good idea? You know? More than anything, the feeling I got from the whole thing was, because I think Steve Wacker is a smart guy. Mm-hmm. I think if it wasn't his boss writing it, it wouldn't have appeared in that format. <laughs> <laughs> really, it's it, it it's smack more than anything of right. Joe Quesada's fancy project. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thinking that he had something and important to say on this issue. Yeah, exactly. And he really didn't. None, nothing about that story left the character in any better position than <laughs> literally no one thing well it, and it also sort of tore open some scars because I honestly felt pretty much everyone but Joe Quesada had started to more or less it's move fun. on yeah. yeah so when it came out I was like really you think this is going to be a good idea so it's such an odd time as well because it basically appears as the last storyline before the last storyline of Brand New Day right I don't understand why it didn't appear earlier mm-hmm. or after the Mark Wade story. Mm-hmm. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. It, I don't know. It, it just seems very, very strange. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. Other questions? Oh, okay. Because we did an hey. awesome job dodging that one for at least 15, 20 minutes. I was going to say, it's, we're, we're 13 minutes into this podcast and we only have 30. Let's okay, go. Right. Okay. Here's two two questions from, from, Grant, uh, from James Massent. And we'll see if we're really going to... They both seem like super softballs, and we may have already covered them. But his first question, comic stores, evolve or die? Question mark. Discuss. <laughs> Compare <laughs> traditional stores versus boutique event stores versus graphic novel bookstores. I think there's space for all of them. Uh, the end. Very nice. Very uh, well although, done. Although I think as the... I think as the publishers change, there'll be less space for what we consider an old-fashioned comic book store. I think it's going to go more towards the graphic novel boutique, uh, event boutique type thing. Yeah. Uh, my, Just in order to survive. Uh, right. My thing is, is I think there's going to have to be a hybrid of the traditional store and the boutique event. Because I think, honestly, the boutique event has problems as a model goes and the 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 main problem as far as i understand it is just one of operating overhead um but i think if there are if there are low-key low-cost ways to create and foster events for your store i think that that's going to be very strong i think traditional stores have 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 usually had the upper hand in the marketplace because they have the stock and usually whoever has the best stock tends to win as long as they don't go you know within the conservative framework like the best stock without moving into the realms of absurd speculation but i think Mm -hmm. generally the stores that people tend to go to are the are the stores where you know you're going to be able to get your books, where you you feel like there's enough variety that you'll be able to find something new, um, and you know th- what people want now as as that becomes a situation where that that description can be fulfilled by Amazon, you know, 
um, you do have to move into, you have to have events, you have to have, I think people really want a sense of community to go with this. And which is why there's a ton of us on the internet and why if you work comics retail, you are in a situation where you, (laughs) where you will be cornered by somebody who really wants to talk to you about the latest Iron Man movie, you know, because they can't really discuss it with, you know, their wife or their friends or a variety of other people, and they're, they really are dying to be able to just talk about the goddamn Iron Man movie. You know, with someone else who's been reading Iron Man, they can feel comfortable has been reading Iron Man for a decade or two. Yeah. Um, I think that, but I do think that, like, there's a lot of boutique stores in, in the last couple of years that aren't necessarily still open now. Or, you know, like, I was kind of devastated when Rocket Ship closed. I know that they closed because they felt that they they could have kept making a go at it, of it, but they weren't necessarily sure that it was what they wanted to do, kind of. But I, I kind of feel like, I, I feel like those numbers, that the, that the boutique store is a very inspiring model, but I'm not sure how realized it is, how profitable it is, and how much it actually works out in the real world um, without other, you know, uh, mitigating backdoor deals, you know, perhaps perpetuating it. So, um, not to put too fine a point on it, but... I I was going to say, is there something you want to share? And this becomes the first point where Jeff knows what he's going to edit out of his podcast. No, uh, no, 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 no. I, 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 I'm going to leave it in, but I'm not going to actually say further. I will say that I do feel that traditional stores have to change, and it's going to be very hard for them to change because the the super fiscally conservative model has worked for them for a long time. I think it's very hard for them to turn around and be like, well, of course, this is still going to continue to be the case. But but the fact of the matter is when when people can order from Amazon at any time or they can download a comic, you know, when they're like, like me, like they've had a couple of beers and it's like 10 o'clock at night, you know, it, those situations end up meaning that availability of stock is no longer the be-all, end-all of what Well, no, that, that's the thing. Today. I think something like Comixology... Mm-hmm. is going to upset the balance of the regular comic book store mm-hmm. more than Amazon because it's not about trades. It's about individual issues. Yes. And as, as soon as publishers do more and more day-and-date stuff, mm-hmm. I, think that's the, I think that's the tipping point. I think when the more, comic, the more big comic publishers do day-and-date, right. the more in trouble your old-fashioned comic book store is. Well, which is why the old-fashioned comic book stores are are really willing to give a lot of leeway to digital, um, and but not on the day and date market. I don't yeah. think that they're and I and I think that I think they're very smart too. It drives me nuts that a lot of people. I can understand that people are want the um, the opportunity to get comics, you know, on their iPod, but frankly, I'm, you know, maybe, again, I have my biases, but I'm like, I can wait if it means, you know, I can wait two weeks or a month to pick up an issue on the iPhone, because again, I'm buying them under situations where it's like half the time, it's like 11 o'clock at night, and I'm staying up too late, and I've got a couple of drinks in me kind of situation anyway, and also, I would like for there to be a direct marketplace 
that's still around in another five or ten years. So, mm-hmm. and certainly the comics retailers are too. So I don't think that they're going to to go gentle into that into that good night. And again, as long as you know, as we talked about in our previous podcast, uh, as long as the direct marketplace is not as bad as everyone says, as Stuart Moore points out, is in a very in a not unhealthy place. Um, you know, it has. It, it it should use its 900-pound gorilla status to say to DC and Marvel, don't be stu- don't be dumb, don't trade, you know, our bird for whatever you think might be in the digital bush over there. Mm. It sounds really porny when I put it like that. Um, I, I, I try to ignore that. What, what's James's second question? Because I really am in the let's get through these questions. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Okay, you're like, go, go, go. Uh, topic number two. Heavily photo-referenced art and the lack of pure cartooning in some superhero comic books equals boring comics? Go! Is that, I was going to say, is that a question? Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know what? This is, this is what you did last time with Matthew Craig stuff. You're like, listeners, send us your questions. And then I read them, and you're all old man grumpus. You're all like, I don't even know why anyone <laughs> would ask that. What's the question there? There's a question? Uh, no, I, I think it's true, though. I, I think that... Especially right. in superhero comics, the heavily photo reference stuff is less to my taste. Right. Now, I mean, really, all, all I can think is like Neil Adams and Brian Hitch aside, I can't think of any artist who can successfully do superhero comics uh, with an insane amount of heavy photo reference. Maybe David Atcher, but I, I think he's, I think he balances the photo reference in the cartooning. Yeah, I think he does as well. Uh, uh, I mean, yeah. Malieve, I think Malieve's stuff is. I think his texture and rendering can be beautiful, but I think as sequential art, it's incredibly static and very off-putting from a reading experience for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I find that, that uh, Maliv's stuff tends to work a little bit better when it's relatively static stuff in the first place, if you know what I mean. Like, this, the stories with that he was doing with Bendis and Daredevil, like, for the most part, worked better than they should have when it was characters sitting around talking, which was good yes. because that was Bendis' strength. But whenever but, it came time to change gears, they were both... Yeah, when, the, when there was a fight sequence, it just became awkward. And, the, and Scarlet, his, his book with um, Bendis that he's got out now, mm-hmm. the, the scenes where you know people are supposed to be running away or whatever, mm-hmm. it looks ridiculous. <laughs> really? Like, how so? Like, in a kind of, like... It looks like they're not running, but instead someone has said to them, I have a camera, why don't you pretend to run and stay there while I take a photograph? And by the way, my camera is going to take two minutes, so just stand in a position where you're comfortable. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. Don't put yourself out. But if you can maybe like put one arm in front of you and another arm back and maybe yeah, toss and your also, head at like, an angle. I know, yeah, I know I'm saying run, but don't you know that everyone always runs with their arms entirely outstretched and their mouth open? Yes. And it's just... It's yeah. It's it's just it doesn't work for me at all. <laughs> well, sadly, James, since we're under a tight time deadline, I will not be playing the role of obnoxious devil's advocate tonight, uh, and and put up a spirited defense for Greg Land. But, um, but yeah, do no, you have one? No, I don't. But <laughs> I was going to blame it on the time deadline. No, I think it would be fun to try and turn around and try and like build, like try and think of a case. I mean. 
but I mean, it, it really was a, a delightfully softball-ish type question. There are times where there there's like different levels of eye candy that one wants in comics. So I think, again, Maleve is a good example where I think that I can enjoy Maleve's comic telling chops if he's doing certain things. And again, a lot of that is the talking head stuff, which I think that he can do quite well. Um, there are times where like Mike Diodato, whose work I tend to find uh, as a, uh, can, 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 or is it Pacheco who also does a certain amount of photo referencing as well? I feel like Pacheco might be doing more. I, I, I would not normally put Pacheco under a heavy photo reference. Or maybe I'm thinking of Salvador La Roca. Is it Salvador oh, La Roca? Salvador La Roca definitely does. And yeah. again, that takes me entirely out of the book when I'm reading his stuff. Yeah, so I mean, I, I have a tendency to, to not be that impressed with it. Um, it, it, is, it is very rare when you can find someone like Hitch and Adams who, who can sort of do it well. I think um, it just also seems to betray a basic element of cartooning because, you know, if you look at someone like, you know, when you look at like if, if Darwin Cook decides to draw uh, a Robert Mitchum pastiche, you still get the sense that you're looking at Robert Mitchum, even though he's not photo referencing it. You know, the the ability of a cartoonist to, to take lines on paper and make it something that you can recognize I mean, I I love Kirby's that unpublished issue of The Prisoner where he's like walking around and it's Kirby drawing, you know, um, Patrick McGowan because it it looks like Patrick McGowan, you know, but it also looks but it also like looks like Kirby. Kirby, and that's like the best of both worlds, you know. Yes. That's what you really want. So ultimately, yeah, I'm not I'm not a fan of the photo referencing. It just it, but I, I suppose I could make a case for it in some certain situations. I just, there's very, very few of them. Okay, done. We've got, um, we've got a few Matthew Craig questions. Wow, we're actually almost at the end of those, which maybe we'll save at the end. Uh, David Brothers was like, <laughs> in addition to my previous questions, talk about gorillas some. Um, gorillas is awesome. Yes. <laughs> um, I, it's in what context, I guess. I'll give you a context, Graham. Uh, okay. Do you think that Gorillas would have been as successful if it had been a live super band as opposed to no. an animated band? I no. don't think so either. Uh, I think Gorillas. I think the. Here's the thing, though. I think it would have been as successful if it had had the same idea of an th- ongoing narrative but wasn't necessarily Jimmy Hewlett. I think what makes Gorillaz um, work, quote-unquote, uh, is not that particular style of drawing, as much as I think that Hewlett's art is wonderful for it, mm-hmm. but the idea that there is a narrative attached to it. People got excited not because, you know, Jamie designed the style of video, but because the style of video was about Murder Contuity and the noodle robot being chased by Bruce Willis. Right. People get excited about Plastic Beach not just because they want to hear Damon Oliver's new music, but because they wanted the next chapter of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's what I think that's what makes a crossover from something like The Good, the Bad, and the Queen, mm-hmm. um, which also musically I don't think was as interesting as Gorillaz. Right. But which didn't have an, anywhere clear uh, as as strong an impact. Yeah. Um, because it was four guys on stage. Mm-hmm. 
and I know that when Gorillaz is live now, it's they're on stage and you can see them. But there's also the movies. There's also the multimedia aspect. There's and more importantly, there's the narrative. There's right. the idea that there is some sort of ongoing story that may not be like a continuity or a narrative in the most traditional sense, but it's something you can follow. Well, and this is actually one of the things that I find really fascinating about the Gorillaz stuff, having only dipped my toe into it lightly, is the way in which, and I think it's one of the things that serves them quite well, is that the narrative and that the story that there is a little bit of the air quotes around that, that it's not a fully fleshed out. Oh, no, it's all, um, it's, it's fascinating because it's, the narrative is essentially throughout the videos mm-hmm. and then in all the peripheral stuff. Mm-hmm. So for example, if you only watch the videos, you would have a slight idea of a narrative, right. but in order to understand what the quote unquote story is, uh, it's on the website. It's in the spinoff book. Right. It's in the tour program. It's you know what I mean. It and it's it's something you have to hunt down. And I think the the level of participation necessary for the person to follow the story is what makes it more interesting. Oh, interesting. I I would say that to me, part of what makes it more interesting is is that there are spaces in the story that you fill in with yourself. You know what I mean? Like oh yeah, that's that's definitely still the case because essentially the story stops in between um, albums. Right. I mean, obviously, like, you know, post-album, that's all the singles and the videos come out, but say after the end of... Um, God, I can't even remember the last single from uh, Demon Days. Whatever the last single was from, De- from Demon Days uh-huh. until the, the run-up to Plastic Beach, mm-hmm. there, was, there was no new narrative. Um, the, the book came out, they had, they had a book called Rise of the Ogre that came out mm-hmm. that had a, you know, maybe this happened as a, as a next chapter, and right. then... Pretty much the next album said, no, that's not the case. Right. Like, the continuity is actually this. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I kind of get the sense, because, again, just having listened to, like, having pursued very little of the actual outside stuff or structure, but just listening to the narrative in um, Demon Days and in Plastic Beach, you know, those things ha- are, are are super evocative, but are not are not so drilled down to a story. And back when I was a kid, that's the sort of thing that used to drive me nuts, that it wasn't all cohesive and all mapped out and all perfect. But, you know, as I get older, I'm like, ah, oh, thank God, because so many of the concept albums, you know, like you don't you don't want something like, you know, the fucking Mr. Roboto album where everything is laid out with like a, a kind of an, a, an atrocious and excruciating level of detail that just sort of makes you realize like how not entirely smart many of the people associated are. Oh know? no, it's, it's, it's entirely, uh, almost made for interpretation. Exactly. And I think, that uh, especially when it comes smart. to Damon Albarn's lyrics against the guests, you know, the, the other singers and the other rappers very much so who, who are much more, you know, open to not literalism, but it's, it's much more clear what they're talking about. Yeah. Exactly. You, you look at the Damon Albarn lyrics, and Damon Albarn lyrics are vague to the point of just obscure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I think that's really to the benefit of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I also do think that there's a way in which you have things like that. It's, it helps give an idea of real experience if people give you contradicting, contradictory ideas about something. You know, so 
for Plastic Beach, I do appreciate that you get the hip-hop artists saying one thing and Alburn will say something more vague and sometimes the the guest artists will say things in direct contradiction to what each of them say you know yes. so there's an overall tone that's consistent but within it there's sort of a um there's something that's much more multifaceted that ends up feeling more organic and interesting and for me really exciting so so, hey, we actually I, talked I, about I it. Hope, I hope, David, that's what you're hoping for. I, I, <laughs> I, don't, know, I don't know what he might have been asking about. He might have been asking about the music. Because I, I, I've given David lots of Blur songs to listen to. Oh, yeah. Because he was listening to Gorillaz. And I was like, Blur, uh, David Melbourne. Um, and I was actually really nervous before doing it. Because to my mind, Blur is a lot more poppy. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking that maybe that wasn't what he was reacting to mm-hmm. uh, in Gorillaz. Mm-hmm. Um, so I mean, maybe he was looking to talk about the music. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, David, if you were. Oh, please. We don't have to apologize to David Brothers. He's got his handsome off to crow about for the next uh, couple You've of You've seen that both of them have essentially agreed to it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that was <laughs> awesome. <laughs> we want this to happen. We're not going to let them back down. So, uh, yeah, let's let's have that happen. So that brings us up to it, and really the only thing left are some vestigial um, Matthew Craig questions. Are any of them quick enough to do in about two minutes? Well... Because my uh, eyes are the clock, sir. My yes, I know, exactly. That's why I was kind of like, I kind of, not in the next two minutes or so, but um, unless you want to, unless you feel like, Will the new digital comics revolution be a level playing field, or does it run the risk of becoming a neo direct market? Is something that it will be more of a level playing field. I would like to believe that's the case. I I worry that the neo direct market may already be there. Like there's not, and it may turn around. Okay, if there if there is a neo direct market, it's not going to be the same neo direct market because. I feel that Marvel have already shut themselves outside of the market to an extent because you cannot get Marvel books on the Comixology store itself. You have to use Marvel app. You can get some of them. Uh, there's a lot you can't. Agreed. Agreed. They and definitely I feel that's a really, really, really bad idea. Yeah. And I feel that um, definitely the way the Comixology is set up, they're promoting independent books mm-hmm. more than they're promoting Marvel. Mm-hmm. And so, if nothing, maybe it's going to be a hybrid of the two. I don't think it's going to be the same direct market. Right. I I agree with you. My worry is that in some ways the direct market that we are looking down the barrel of comes from having one distributor. Um, there's other factors, of course, that make it very different, but definitely having uh, one bottleneck to pass things through has has made things very difficult. Uh, and I do worry that currently Comixology uh, has won, and there's everyone is partnering up with them, and they do things really well, and they they sound like they're really on top of things and have a lot of love for the comic marketplace overall. But on the other hand, Steve Geppi probably sounded like that 15, 20 years ago too. So um, I do worry, what, you know, the idea that people will have the opportunity to have multiple choices in the ways in which they get their books and read their books uh, digitally, I think is, is kind of a, is, is crucial. I, I, th- I think that might happen, but we'll see. Yeah. Uh, we'll see. It's definitely, it's not necessarily guaranteed. And I don't necessarily know at this point, um, you know, because long box seems so out of the picture now, 
uh, I don't necessarily know um, what would end up changing that. You know, um, but it but it might. There might be a sort of situation where, you know, some comics company turns around and partners exclusively with like Amazon's Kindle, for example, or Barnes and I, I think Note if any, I think like if that. any publisher partners exclusively with the device, they're pushing themselves out of the market. Yeah. I think that would be a really, really, really bad idea. Yeah. Um, I, I agree. Although comiXology, I mean, fortunately you can read the books on, on your computer or on your device, but that's still, I mean, it's still kind of limited. Don't you think? Yeah, but I, I think that's almost part of the... I think that's just the way it's going to go, <laughs> to be honest. I, no, really, I think to give the level of reading experience that people are going to want, mm-hmm. I think you're going to be limited for the uh, number of devices and the type of devices. Right. Well, that's certainly true. Well, yeah, that's kind of true. I mean, I'm impressed that there are... That there, there aren't a lot of people. A lot, most people. When I mention that I read comics on my iPhone, pretty much dismiss it super, super quickly. Like I could never do that. <laughs> but I am shocked. There are people who can do it, even though, including me, even though it's not the optimal way to read them. So, uh, and probably, co- you know, causes the the uh, creators a certain amount of grief because the the panel to panel flow. I was reading two or three comics before we talked. Um, just because I was like, God, what am I going to talk about? So I, I flipped through a couple of recent downloads on Comixology, and I really was aware. Like, I'm I'm reading them, and it's very much like I have no idea what the panel of this particular page looks like because I'm reading it so quickly. Yeah. You know? um, uh, it didn't necessarily bother me, but and in a case of considering I was reading Tiny Titans number one, I can't imagine that I was missing out on some sort of overwhelming, you know. Oh, uh, oh, you'd be surprised, my friend. <laughs> I Not to diss the artist. I'm just saying, like, if there was some sort of, like, masterly tension developing in the six-panel grid, I definitely missed it. So. You never know. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, there we go. 7.03. I should probably jump. This was heavily truncated, but I hope, hopefully still satisfying. I enjoyed it. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, I hope you enjoyed it. If not, um, we'll try and do better next time. Exactly. I figure by next Wait. time, yes. Now, next time, maybe sometime, you're, you're hinting. You're hinting that you because you're going away, that the next podcast might be a while from now. Oh, uh, yeah, we will see how things happen because I, uh, we'll record it next week and then we'll see how long it takes to mix. I did realize at a certain point, I'm like, there's no reason if we record it that I can't just mix it on the plane. So maybe it won't be as long as the wait. We promise to give you guys a heads up. Let's put we it could up. always just try and do one where there's not that much editing necessary, where we don't say anything atrocious. <laughs> but that never happens, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. No, I mean, seriously, it, it's not as it is. It doesn't take huge amounts of time. It basically, you know, it's just that you and I talk for a huge chunk of time. So... Two and a half hours of podcasting means that I'm going to be listening to it, you know. For two and a half hours at least. At least. And sometimes a little closer, a little more than that, but not much more. Because thank God over time, you know, I don't have to re-equalize each other's voices. I just mainly, you know, cut out some tisks and some pauses and, you know, the occasional topic that we 
that we we then, you know, we then realized we really shouldn't have said yes exactly <laughs> but but for the most part it is it's very very close to you know what you hear is what you get so it, thank god it doesn't take much time to edit on that end so now you know listeners you're getting almost uncensored <laughs> Exactly. You can't hear the 10 minutes of, of expletives with which Graham greets every podcast, but... Uh, yeah, you, yeah, listeners, you always think I'm like, hello, really, there's a lot more after that. It's just, <laughs> I have to get all the Tourette's out first. It's, it's just embarrassing. I'm so glad. Thank you for cutting that out. Otherwise, you know, it would be horrible. I, I, for, for everyone. It, agreed. Me. Agreed. It's best for all involved that nobody ever sees the real you, Graham. <laughs> I, I, in so many ways. <laughs> and on that merry note. Exactly, um, on that bombshell. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, this was great. And uh, thank you. And um, we will definitely exchange some emails uh, as, as things get closer to next Wednesday for the timing of things. Yes, well, it was always a pleasure talking to you, sir. And this time, as often as every other. Agreed. Wow, what an elegant way of putting that. I wish I could. I wish I could do that. I wish I had your chops, Graham McMillan. Uh, hey, I wish I had your chops. Check your last <laughs> Group hug. Group hug. Yes. This may be the part that we edit out just for. <laughs> no, we should definitely keep this. Up. Oh, you think? Okay. Well, fair enough. All right. 